This episode of Talk of the Devils is sponsored once more by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit 1 million orders phase. Yep, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling ETH style turtleneck sweaters or blueprints for brand new stadiums, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to Talk of the Devils, you can sign up for our $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash reddevils, all in lowercase without any spaces. So go to shopify.com slash reddevils to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash reddevils. The Athletic. This is Talk of Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. We've had 24 hours to stew on that defeat against Newcastle and we have got the full band back together to go over every single detail from it. Whoopie doo. Carl Anker, Andy Mitten, Laurie Whitwell, here we are again. There's no red wine in my hand, there really should be. Oh, Carl's got some. Cheers, Carl. Is that red wine, Carl? <laughs> it is. I'm taking Leaf out of Ian's book now. Oh, this is depressing. <laughs> I feel like I need some kind of alcoholic drink here. And I, I, I told you, didn't I, about my new invention, uh, champagne and amaretto, chamaretto. <laughs> um, but it doesn't feel like an occasion for that because... <laughs> that was a chamaretto of a performance, wasn't <laughs> it? was it? a shambles Wee. of a performance. Yeah. That was the kind of performance that made you really deeply concerned about the direction of the club, the team, players, Eric Ten Hag. Um, and actually, obviously as a journalist, you sort of watch it in two ways, don't you? I, I don't know about you guys, but trying to watch it as a journalist, analytically and thinking about the potential stories that can come from a game. But then also there's always that bit of you that's a fan, you know, at the heart of it. You know, they grew up sporting Manchester United and that made me angry um, as th- that part of me. It, it was a performance that infuriated me. You know, there was there was glimpses in the first half when they got on the ball of actually sort of some okay football that, that I was kind of trying to get encouraged by, but it was just um, an abysmal display uh, off the ball. United got bullied by Newcastle, a team, you know, that had played the same 11 against PSG and run themselves into the ground, it seems like, on Tuesday. And then they, they still have more energy than United with a change team um, to, to really go at them. I think that's what means it's a concerning performance where real serious questions have to be asked. We, we, we've asked these questions previously this season, but I think that was a kind of performance that left uh, a lot of troubling aspects that, we're going to pick apart now, I think. The worst performance of the season, Carl? Yeah, the scoreline doesn't look embarrassing, but Manchester United were miles off it at St. James's Park. Miles off it. On our previous episode, we talked about how Newcastle were a physical team, how they're really, really strong counter-pressers, and Manchester United just wandered into a bear trap. They just couldn't get out. Anytime they won the ball, there was a black and white shirt immediately there to win the ball back. United were pulled apart completely when they're out of possession. 
And the defensive effort from a number of players, Marcus Rashford in particular, left a lot to be desired. That's, that, that is as bad as Ralph Regnick. That is as bad as late stage Oli, late stage Mourinho, late stage Louis van Gaal. It's the sort of thing where if you are in the pub and you're overhearing someone say Ten Hag out, I'm not even going to argue anymore. I'm like, all right, if you want Ten Hag gone based on that, you are well within your rights to believe that. <sighs> Andy, agree? It was awful. Again, at Newcastle. I think some of the biggest stinkers in the last five years have come at St. James's Park. Yeah. Remember the game in October when um, Ollie was in charge? Uh, there was the one where Newcastle hadn't won for about 15 years, hadn't picked up a point. <laughs> Under Ranjit, was that? Well, it was when I, when I first discovered that you bought cocktails. That was in yeah, Newcastle. Yeah, that was that night, wasn't it? That yeah, was the was that night. night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're smiling after you fleeced me for 23 quid for a drink in England's cheapest city. <laughs> Last season. <laughs> they've had three wins now against Manchester United since since Wembley and been worthy of all three. It was just so poor. You know that your team's going to lose sometimes, but from start to finish, Newcastle dominated Yes, Manchester United have injuries, but so do Newcastle United. Yes, Manchester United had a tough midweek game in Europe, but so did Newcastle United. You just expect more. And it was bad from start to finish. At times this season, we've seen United come out and play better in the second half because a first half has been particularly poor. But even that didn't happen. And if I'm looking for bright spots, there are a few. Luke Shaw, Harry Maguire. Uh Bruno Fernandes did all right, but there was some absolute stinking performances there and the winning run came to an end. Not every rival team won this weekend, but it's for me, it's an accurate barometer of where Manchester United are. Didn't expect to win the game. United beat teams lower down in the table. Don't draw, they beat them and lose to, against teams above them in the league. Don't draw, they lose the match. And that has been pretty consistent now. This league table's not lying, although the, the the injury list has been a serious one. So when all the fit players are back, will we see United return to the level we were playing at in, in February? That remains to be seen. But it's been a it's been a poor poor season so far. I think the awkward thing about the injury list is the fact that Newcastle's injury list was worse um, potentially. I mean, looking at the bench for Newcastle, there was zero options to to bring on if the game wasn't going right. But obviously the the first eleven was so good um, in the way it was drilled and the way it played that they didn't need to rely on the bench. And I've worked today at the Etihad Stadium and watched a, a Tottenham team absolutely ravaged by injuries as well to some of their most important players' suspensions too. Um, and they've ended up drawing at, at the Etihad, which not many teams do. I mean, Andy Carl said a moment ago that the performance was as bad as late-stage managers. Um, is that the point we're at or is it far too early to be talking like that? I think Carl's right in saying how bad it is, but what is late stage management? Oli Gunnar Solskjaer's penultimate away game was a 3 0 win at Tottenham over two years ago. When I was watching that, there's no way I would think. The last think time United exactly. beat a team in the top six <laughs> or anyone in the top half, exactly. it feels like away from um, home, yeah. No, I don't think it is. I don't think Eric Ten Hag is within a month of, of losing his job. That could happen if results completely turn against him, but. I still don't think, and I do not want him to lose his job. And I realise, and I agree with Carl's point, is when people are starting to argue against the manager, you just got to sigh and think, fair enough, you're entitled to your opinion. You know, you paid good money to go and watch your team and you're watching absolute crap. 
more often than not. Although, Galatasaray midweek, decent performance. Everton last week, decent performance. I, I know that Eric Ten Hag feels that his team are about to turn the corner all the time. And if that happens, then he can look back at this prolonged poor spell and say that was difficult, I was missing a lot of injuries. But if it doesn't happen, then he starts walking through mud because I don't think there's going to be any solutions in January in terms of new players being being brought in. And it's poor. It's consistently poor. And you look at the games coming up, Chelsea... Who knows what you're going to get with Chelsea. Liverpool away, it seems so daunting. That's coming this month. And I have very, very little faith that Manchester United are going to get any kind of result away from home against a half-decent side. It's pretty alarming, that. It really is. This isn't Luton Town, it's Manchester United. No, Andy, you, you raise a really good point about how United will beat the teams below them and they won't get a result against the teams above them. And now... You know, looking at that league table, there are five, if not six teams that I look in the Premier League table and say that team is better or have a more defined style of play than Manchester United right now. We know how Manchester City play. We know how Liverpool play. We know how Arsenal play. Even Spurs. No, Tottenham play. Yeah. Even Spurs, ravaged by injury, playing four fullbacks. We know how they want to play football. We know, we, everyone on this podcast and everyone listening to this podcast knew how Newcastle play. Yeah. And yet it's nearly two years under Eric Ten Hag. How does Eric Ten Hag want to play football? I can tell you how he wanted to play football in February and why that was good and why that was encouraging. I can tell you what he said he wanted to play over preseason about being the best transition team in the world. And I can tell you why. This isn't working right now, but I cannot, in good consciousness, tell you things will get better when X, Y, Z player comes back from injury anymore. Because we're in this really difficult point where when Lissandro Martinez or when Casemiro come back after Christmas, which is their current EMART date, there is no guarantee that the rest of the system around them or the interactions around them is anywhere near good enough to get the best out of them. Luke Shaw's come back and we've all, we were all really excited about Luke Shaw coming back and said it'll be really, really important for the player playing at left wing and it's going to be really, really important for the defenders as well. But Shaw looked absolutely overwhelmed against Newcastle because Garnacho wasn't necessarily tracking him back, right? So even the good that Shaw can bring you is limited because of what other players aren't doing. So I can't, I can't go, oh, the cavalry's coming. It's really difficult right now to get excited about what United are doing. I mean, undoubtedly, Laurie, Eric Ten Hag will have a plan. There'll be tactical plans that he works on throughout the week in training that he wants to drill into his players. So is it the fact that they're, that they're not able to do it or they don't want to do it? Well, what, what ultimately do you think the problem is? Because I know what people listening to this will have thought when I asked Andy a moment ago about what we think about Ten Hag they point to the players that they've been in this position with these players previously as well. So almost the, the biggest, um, the biggest plus for Ten Hag is the fact that he hasn't been through this before, but other people have. So almost fans are feeling more angry at the group of players in the squad than they are the manager for the problems. I think that's still where the balance of fan sentiment lies, uh, because we've seen this story before. (laughs) Um, and but that is the big question: Can the players do it? Do the players want to do it? And that's the performance against Newcastle made me think that some of these players don't want to do it. 
like you know maybe i'm wrong in that maybe that's unfair but it, that that was the appearance of what some of those runs w- were doing you know we, we talk about you know at Tenag wanting to have a high pressing team uh, at least that was i think the original iteration of what he wanted and i think Carl's right in that it, it, clearly this is a manager that is pragmatic and will adapt to his situation he, he said didn't he about he, he won't bring the ajax way of playing to this manchester united because united as a club are different anyway want a different style of play the fans do historically and also the players at his disposal Carl mentions casemiro for example coming back you know, he he was a, a buy, but you know, in panic really. And I know he had a fantastic season last year, but he's not what Tenag wanted. And, and you kind of get to a point where you're thinking, does he actually move on, Casemiro, for example? I know he's got like three, four years left on his contract, but and I'm talking about a player that wasn't even playing against Newcastle. But I think that's my point that there's not to, to Carl's um, you know line that you're trying to see how this team will progress because actually the reason why Tenag's got results recently is because he's reverted back to players that have sort of done okay for different managers you know Harry Maguire Harry Maguire was United's best player against Newcastle he sensed early on that Marcus Rashford, for example, in front of him wasn't at it. When when Marcus Rashford left uh, Tino Livramento just to run beyond him, Maguire was calling out to him, you know, sort of, what are you doing? Um, and and, and the, so you can lay the blame there at Rashford because he's not done his job. Um, is he uh, equipped with the skills to do that? Is he been told the right things to do that? Um, is the gap between himself and his fullback too big? You know, is, is he covering too much ground? Should we actually say to someone like Rashford, concentrate on what you're good at, uh, which is getting on the ball and dribbling? All these questions are there, but that kind of performance doesn't, it doesn't endear him to people when when you see that kind of action. Same with Anthony Marshall. I mean, we, we've been there with Anthony Marshall anyway. I think the, re- the reason why the reaction to Rashford is is stronger usually is because people know what he's capable of. Whereas with Marshall, you're sort of accepting, okay, we know we know where we've been with him previously. We get glimpses of it against Everton. You know, you get sort of little movements like we did at Newcastle. He went on a little run, didn't he, at one point? But then you just get the kind of generally static forward play that is just never going to fit with a Ten Hag side. And yeah, you can use him occasionally. Yeah, I think I think he basically was trying to rotate, freshen up his team a little bit because Hoyland had played in midweek and he'd, he'd had a little bit of an injury. Um, and, and a 20-year-old striker that's just playing in the Premier League for the first time, you should be able to rotate him out of your team and not have a dramatic drop-off of um, performance. You saw as soon as him and Anthony came on, I'm not saying that they were brilliant by any means, but they ran around and that is, you knew going into that Newcastle game, that was the least you had to do to try and match Newcastle, just physically. It was, Definitely. That was what, that's what made me so angry, I think. It wasn't a surprise how Newcastle played. Anthony Gordon is going to be a pest. Almiron, going to be a pest. Isak, going to be a pest. You've got to match that, surely. And and yeah, I think midfield as well was an issue where Newcastle were actually able to get on the ball and hold it. And Eddie Howe said afterwards that was what allowed their fullbacks to press on and cause such damage to United because they had a bit more control in midfield and United didn't have that. And now you can ask questions of, you know, Scott McTominay there, Bruno Fernandes, obviously, and Kobe Mainu. You know, that was a kind of a bit of a rude awakening. I think he still did good bits there. But, you know, clearly, you know, he's an 18-year-old finding his way in this league. He's not someone that you should be able to throw into a situation like that and, and expect to thrive in it and I think that's probably why th- there's more concern about this situation than previously this season just because the the, the, the personnel that Eric Ten Hag's got at his disposal it's, it's tough to figure out how he's going to rearrange them into a way that can actually beat teams away they, they will go and beat Bournemouth at home you know I can well see that but as soon as it gets to a difficult match where they're going to have to use some nuance some smarts and yeah some you know 
blind uh, strength and, and, and stamina, um, it, it, it feels like it's going to fall apart again. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Can we just focus in on Marcus Rashford a little bit, Andy, if we can, because he seems to be the one player who who is getting the majority of the the scrutiny after Newcastle, despite there being a number of players who were who were well below what we'd expect. Um, John Muller's written in um, the the match verdict on the Athletic that Rashford, when he went off the pitch, left the game with no shots, no touches in the box, no key passes. No progressive passes or carries, no successful crosses, and just 65% of his 17 passes completed. Why do you think he was so poor at St. James's Park? Because that does not read well at all. doesn't read well, but it's not an isolated game. He's been poor all season. He stopped scoring. I don't know him well enough to know whether he's happy or unhappy, but he doesn't look like a happy human to me. People... Are often presumptuous with footballers, but I hear people talking about Marcus Rashford's body language more than any other player. If he's the opposite of a confident player on the top of his game, then that's what Marcus Rashford looks to me at the moment. The forwards aren't scoring. Okay, they did at Everton in Europe. It's completely different, but in the main in the league, the forward players are not scoring. Eric Ten Hag wanted Harry Kane. That was his number one target. And for all his virtues, Rasmus Hoyland, as Laurie says, he's a 20-year-old lad who should be allowed time to find his way in a new league, in a new country, uh, uh, where, the, where the standards are extremely high. He's not got that. He's just been thrown in, and I think he's pretty popular, but he's going to have to start scoring soon. With Marcus, when he's played on the right, he doesn't look unhappy. Uh, I think it's a complicated situation with him and the criticism doubles down on him, A, because he signed that huge contract and rightly or wrongly, and probably wrongly, people do say you earn this and you earn that. People not unfairly look to the best paid players in the team to act as leaders, to produce those match-winning moments and we're just not seeing it from, from Marcus Rashford and he does get criticised a lot and fans are often harder on their own as well. Remember the times when... Yeah. Ryan Giggs got loads of abuse. And I asked him about it years later. He said, I deserved it at the time because I wasn't playing well. But it didn't seem so calm at the time because it was a, could be pretty vicious towards him. I'd love to see the Marcus Rashford of last season. Instead, we're seeing the Rashford under late stage Ollie, under Ralph Rangnick and... It frustrates fans because they, they feel that on his, at his best he can be close to a world-class player. But then you watch world-class players and Marcus, like Manchester United, doesn't look close to being at that level at the moment. It doesn't help any of them that the team is changing all the time. That was the 13th difference starting 11 in 14 league matches. So even though Newcastle have got injuries, that team I think had started three times together in the previous week and it showed the patterns of play everything comes from that and 
I've asked Tenarg about this, and he said, when all my players are fit, look at the results. He strongly believes in that. But then we also saw how bad Casemiro was at the start of this season, and even Luke Shaw, and even Lissandro Martinez. They didn't roar into this season where you're thinking, right, three or four wins straight away. United were poor at the start of this season. I think the difficulty here is, yes, there's a lot of chopping and changing, but also Ten Hag is doing that chopping and changing. I did not enjoy his double substitution against Galatasaray, but that starting lineup that goes two ahead in, in 20 minutes, Marcus Rashford suspended, Hoyland up, you know, Hoyland leading the line. Anthony was given a run out as well. That, that, that worked for a little bit. And Ten Hag seems to be chopping and changing a lot because he doesn't seem to fully trust the players like, to his availability. To touch on Rashford, you know, Rashford over the summer, he was talking to Gary Neville saying of the front three positions, you know, he said he will play anywhere, but the, playing on the right-hand side is the one he finds most difficult because he can't figure out the angles and he said he doesn't necessarily know how to time his runs. You know, we saw not just at Newcastle, as Andy said, but also against Everton, he's overplaying the ball a lot more again. He's running into double teams, he's running into triple teams and losing the ball. He's also playing a lot wider and deeper than he was last season. I mean, last season, when everyone had to track back and counter-press, Rashford sort of stayed up quite stayed up quite high because the idea was Casemiro or Martinez would win the ball, launch it to Rashford, and Rashford would get into the penalty area and have a shot as soon as possible. This season, he's not tracking back, and also the counter-press isn't working. So it looks doubly bad, which now you've got a situation, one, should Rashford be given that special treatment to not track back and stay up the field or like a latent threat? in the same way Vinny does for Real Madrid or in the same way Rafael Lau does the for AC Milan or in the same way Kylian Mbappe does. I mean, there's people listening to this podcast saying Rashford isn't on those players' levels and he shouldn't get that treatment in the first place. But that was the plan last season. And then you go, if you remove that special treatment from him, is he busting the gut hard enough to get back? And against Newcastle, he wasn't. I mean, you saw Harry Maguire's frustration. I mean, I was running the discussion page on The Athletic and I just saw more and more comments just getting more and more annoyed at the fact that he wasn't tracking back. So it's, it's really difficult. I think at, when you are playing a team like Newcastle, okay, maybe it's not working for you going forward, but you do have to start busting the gut and playing hard, really roll your sleeves up and doing the dirty work because based on that game, Anthony Gordon is now ahead with Marcus Rash for that left-hand spot going into the Euros. This isn't just bad for Manchester United. This is bad for Marcus Rashford in multiple senses of the word. And it's up to him to fix it. I thought Gordon was excellent. I watched him very closely for the 21s in, in, in Georgia in the summer. And he's really impressing me. I can see why Manchester United didn't go for him, even though Eric Tenag likes the, the younger players, because Marcus Rashford's in that position. So you'd be thinking there are other priority positions. And Garnacho. Yeah, and Garnacho. And, the... and Jaden Sancho in theory. Yeah. Remember him? Yeah. I mean, you're looking at new, that Newcastle team and that's, they've got Tino Liveramento who was, you know, Andy and I were at the FA Youth Cup semi-final at St. George's Park way back when during one of the lockdowns where Chelsea just absolutely battered Manchester United for 45 minutes. Tino was there and you're looking at him go, he's going to be a first team player for someone. He goes to Southampton. He was really good against Southampton in those annual August 1-1 draws Manchester United have had with Southampton back <laughs> in the day. And you go, this is a player here. 
And he was very good for Newcastle. He's another player that should probably be in, in contention. And the way Newcastle used Tino and Gordon to manipulate a really naive, and that's the only word for it, a naive out-of-possession shape for Manchester United. I mean, Ten Hag sets up this midfield to go man-to-man. Uh, and you've got Scott McTominay now, who's playing in this really, really advanced role, which leads Maynard just marooned in an island by himself. So there are loads of times where Gordon's went, oh, if I just drift inward, I'll take Aaron Wan-Bissaka out of the equation. I know Rashford's not tracking back at the moment, so Tino gets on his bike, and it was just all that space. I did it again and again and again. There are multiple times, which, so, you know, Bruno Fernandes is meant to be marking Bruno Gimash. You know, Gimaresh is doing similar things to what we've seen in the Spurs game, what we've seen in the Brighton games, where good teams in the Premier League know Manchester United's midfield is going to mark you man-to-man. So if you make your number 10 just drop really, really deep, you drag their number six out of position. So Colby Mania was getting dragged out of position multiple times. because It took Newcastle about 10 minutes to work that out. I was watching that very closely because I, I'd, I'd looked at the way that they'd matched up the midfield. And it's happened a few times that already this season. Another criticism, Laurie, of of the manager is is the in-game management as well, isn't it? It's the ability to change when you can clearly see that something isn't quite working. Is that because he's not had the tools at his disposal to be able to, to make those changes or is there a different reason? Yeah, I don't know. And this is one of the things that was kind of lauded about Ten Hag, certainly on his arrival, people at Ajax... Well, I think it, at periods last season, yeah. it looked like he, he was very able to do that. Quick to act is direct. I mean, that's that's one of the things that you know people say is a little bit grating at times to the players. You know, like we're talking about getting through to players, and and, and certainly some of the ways that you know had a, a bit of an effect last season in terms of being being uh, straight with players, um, being clear. Um, but then it can sort of lead on into other aspects where you know you've got lots of instruction. I think Andy's touched on it before, where the team meetings they'll, they'll go over points, you know. Uh, repeatedly to kind of make sure that the players understand but clearly that's not getting through or it's not having the desired effect it seems or all the players aren't able to do it um and but th- that that directness is was something that yeah I think has had benefits last season he, you know his in-game management I think was one of the things that was most impressive probably and it's just not quite working I don't know if that's because I think he's still uh, you know I don't think he does yeah I don't think he knows what he's going to get from certain players every, every week. So that's what maybe leads to that indecisiveness or at least making decisions that are unusual. Um, so yeah, starting Luke Shaw at centre-back was, I think, because he'd you know, he played so well against Man City, for example, in that position. Um, knew that Newcastle would be very mobile, you know, in that front um, line and, and Shaw was, you know, was, was following in, um, you know, Isaac, for example, he played well actually. In fairness, like Maguire, you know, yeah, th- th- those those two are the best United players easily. Um, you know, him and Maguire. I'd, I just thought that, that that's probably why he was trying to do that. But then you've got Diego Dalla as as left back, and it, it just didn't really work. And you know, he, he, I don't think he is comfortable there really. And so he's kind of fitting, you know, square pegs round holes, and it's not. But he's trying to figure out something because he's probably not. He's not. He's not. Doesn't feel like he can depend on certain players in certain uh, situations. Um, I mean, that then leads us into the Rafael Varane thing, where you know he's he's on the bench. You know, he was. It's it's a it's a big. It's another big issue where he's had. You can tell that he's he needs to be decisive. He needs to show strength because he's the manager, and United have have had you know issues with the past in the past of, of players having too much power and responsibility. And you know the Cristiano Ronaldo issue last season 
you know, was a great example of the manager being backed, and that's what you want to see. If a player's you know disruptive and you know is causing issues, no matter how big their profile is, get them get them gone. Same thing is happening with Jaden Sancho, and again, you can you can have different opinions on that situation, but you want the manager to be the authority on it. Um, but it, it's just there's quite a few situations like that where you're feeling like okay, that player's probably not you know totally on board with Tenag at the moment. Um, but Maguire, for example, you know you could well imagine that in the summer where that's been a bruising experience for him. You know, basically being told you can go, um, but then he's he's knuckled down, he's fought his way back. So there's clearly ways back for certain players. But I think one of the issues I, I, I've written a piece on the Varane situation, but that 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 shows that you've got a guy there who has won multiple Champions Leagues with Real Madrid um, titles, you know, with Real Madrid, the World Cup with France, and he's you know he's now I don't know where you'd rank him. I know it's, he's the right centre back, so it's, it's basically just Maguire. But then I'd probably say Lindelof is, is maybe ahead of him. He started one game in two months, Varane. Yeah, and that is Tenag you know, making a selection on, on his uh, tactics and also probably physical output. Ten Hag has been quite clear about his methodology on a number of things. And we had to spell out all the reasons why Rafa Varane is being benched at this point in time. And we've gone at length about why Ten Hag is very, very insistent on having a left footer at left centre-back as well. And why Andre Nana was brought in with David De Gea because the whole thing was about making Manchester United better at building from the back. And then you watch Manchester United <laughs> yeah. play and you're going, you're so bad at building from the back. Um, and I think this is this is another point of frustration for United fans in that is that the things Ten Hag is saying in press conferences and the sort of trust me, trust the process, when all the players are coming back fit, you'll see the true version of what we're playing is not lining up with what we're currently seeing. If you're going to play Luke Shaw at left centre back and you're going to play Harry Maguire, right centre-back, surely that triangle, that three-player connection between those centre-backs and Andre Nana has to be better than what we saw against Newcastle. And yes, okay, Newcastle, very, very strong pressing team, very, very strong counter-pressing There are a lot of them about though now, aren't there, to be honest? Exactly, right? Loads of teams are going to to hurt you in that sort of manner. So you've got to be better drilled in that front three trio. And then, of course, you get the thing of, well, it's not just the front three trio. You've also got to make sure the midfielders ahead of them, are well coached. Scott McTominay played nearly 100 minutes against Newcastle and he touched the ball 30 times. That's really low. For for someone in that position, it's really, really low. That's really bad. That's about half of you you would expect for a team that's been dominated. That's really, really bad. Yeah. Bruno Guimaraes got 85 touches of the ball. And yes, okay, Newcastle were far more dominant and Bruno is the deepest midfielder in that Newcastle system. But you've got an 18-year-old in Kobe Mainu who is in the second Premier League start and he was left just completely alone as a passing option. Laurie brought this up as well. Is this because McTominay's doing exactly what Ten Hag has told him, which is get forward in advance? And if that's the case, then we have to ask Ten Hag, why, why are you leaving Kobe Mainu by himself in that midfield against... Kobe. Cobby like Robbie. Cobby like Robbie. Why are we leaving Cobby like Robbie marooned on an island when Scott McTominay's bombing forward? And I mean, his average t- position was basically on the right wing. Can I ask another question as well? I just wondered, and, and I, I, you know, as I say, Maguire's been one of United's best players recently, and, and I actually 
tweeted this about McTominay after he scored in Istanbul. Like, is you know how important is he to United right now? Is he one of the most important players because of the impact that he was having in that particular role? But do do both those players that Tenag's gone back to because he needed results actually mean that the things that he's trying to do more long term are just impossible because you've got a, a defence in Maguire. He prefers just to be a bit deeper, doesn't he, Maguire? So then you've got that gap from the back line to the front line, but obviously with the midfield, you know, in the middle somewhere, and it's just too spread apart. I think we've got it on the Athletic where you, you can see the pass map uh, that Newcastle have had, and it's just so much more compact. And I mean, United is all over the place anyway, but Newcastle is a great example of of, of being compact, and and that's why the attackers and, and you know can go forward with more um, aggression and, and and intensity because they know their defenders are behind them to kind of back them up. Um, and, and I just wanted to make one point on uh, the right back that set up the goal for Newcastle, Kieran Trippier. Just, you know, I know it's in the past now, but remember when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wanted to sign him? It's a good point. United said it was <laughs> too much money. Point. I mean, they signed him for £12 million, Newcastle. And he's he's more transformative than just a good right back who can cross the ball and, and defend well. He is someone that whips up the crowd you know, is a great professional, you know, is a bit of a lad as culture well. Culture setter. Culture setter. Culture yeah. setter. And just, you, you can just depend on them. I think he plays, I mean, he plays all the time. Is he a United fan from Manchester? These people should be yeah. no-brainers at the, the signing. I remember Andy Cole telling me about Kieran Trippier when he was a kid at City because Andy's lad was, was playing there. And then I watched his career really closely and had dealings with him when he came to Spain. We spoke about him on these podcasts. Manchester United wanted him, didn't get him. If that, again, was in isolation, you'd accept it. But yeah. we've seen it about... We, can, we could name a team of players who Manchester United should have signed. Jude Bellingham being the absolute star <laughs> who the team would have signed. And it is just so frustrating. And I'm glad um, Harry Maguire is doing well because he's, he's had a really rough 12 months. I met his parents in Istanbul Airport the other day. Other day. I didn't say on, on the podcast. Well, I didn't say on the podcast because it was 12 hours after we did the last podcast thinking about it because I was in an airport <laughs> going back to Manchester. I mean, you didn't have the foresight, the, the, the yeah. prophetic foresight to know that you were going to meet them. Like it when family members travel around to support their son, their husband, whatever. And uh, they were nice people. People from Sheffield spoke about the three sons because I know what Harry's up to because you see it in the... In the, the on the internet or in the papers every day, but I was uh, so where are your other lads? Crawley. So I was at Crawley a few weeks ago. I finished a ninety-two at Crawley Town against Villa, and where's the other one? Ghoul Town. I said I've seen my brother play at Ghoul Town. The, you know, with the water tower behind the goal. Yeah, that's the one. Anyone Incredible. listening in on that conversation would have just thought you need to be sectioned. <laughs> Right, um, speaking of being sectioned, I think that's enough uh, <laughs> yeah. of Manchester United against Newcastle. Um, I'll need to tell you, though, that if you want to read about the articles that the lads have got up on The Athletic at the moment about everything Manchester United, there might even be a takeover update at some point in the future. Who knows? There is an offer on at the moment. If you want to treat your loved one or someone you really don't like to the best Manchester United <laughs> coverage, you can sign up now with a one-year subscription to The Athletic for a discounted price of just £19.99. Sign up at theathletic.com forward slash Pod. Right, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about Chelsea, because that's going to be different, Laurie, isn't it? You know, Manchester United at home. Yeah? 
Well, it probably will be because Chelsea are as unpredictable as United, really. No, no, they're definitely worse. I mean, one thing we didn't talk about (laughs) in the first section on Newcastle is that Newcastle are actually quite good at home as well. I mean, losing 1-0 to Newcastle (laughs) is something that shouldn't really be that bad. It's just a manner of the display for United. They're still just five points outside the top four. There's six points behind City. I mean, you know, there's there's crazy, mitigation, yeah. maybe, that when they do get more players back, maybe it'll be better. But one thing that is certain, they are currently five points ahead of Chelsea. So it, on the theory that they lose to teams above them and beat the ones below, it's three points at Old Trafford, isn't it? Well, this is a Chelsea team that, as you're alluding to, lost 4-1 to the same Newcastle eleven that could only just about squeak past United 1-0. Yeah, uh, although they did beat uh, Brighton today with, with, with 10 men, I'm led to believe, 3-2. <laughs> Do you remember when we thought that Brighton result, like they were just a yeah. really good team? Oh, I don't yeah, think they've won since. <laughs> Any team that comes up against Brighton will have, will have difficulties. I mean, I don't really know what to say about Chelsea because it's just been so mad, hasn't it, since Sir Jim Ratcliffe didn't buy Chelsea, you know, and, and now he's obviously got uh, a very close to uh, a 25% stake in, in the, the team of his boyhood years. Um, That's still happening then, yeah. We're, we're, we're led to believe it is still happening. Uh, yeah, it okay. is the Glazers that have the final say on this. And as we know, they'd like to take their time on, on lots of aspects of, of Manchester United. Uh, but yeah. So it's this week then, is it? Yeah. Listen, some people have said this week and then nobody really knows. They said that last week, didn't they? I know. The nobody knows. I don't know. Even, nobody knows. I'm not even sure some of the Glazers know. You they know what I mean? They I'm don't not know. even sure they themselves know. They don't. Joel and Avram. Do we know what, what the holdup is? Even. I, I don't. I mean, listen. I'll be purely speculating. Apart from having spoken to people that you know, speak to people that speak to people, and, and you kind of think, okay, maybe this would make some kind of sense. Is that it is such a complex deal? Class A, Class B shares. Yeah. The sporting influence. How do you actually get that in writing? You know, every little nuance of detail. Andy and I have seen a document that pertains to uh, a long time ago in this whole process um, where it was uh, basically lawyers uh, for the Qatari bid kind of going through different aspects that the Glazers had sort of pushed back on. And it was going into such minute detail, you know, that, that you just wouldn't comprehend about you know, futures and, and different prospects. So that's, you know, having seen that, I can see why when it's actually getting close to a, a real deal being put together that we're, we're close to it. Everyone involved in it, you know, so Dave Brailsford, for example, is is going to have this, you know, big influence at United once it does get confirmed. You know, from what we're told, he is working towards it being confirmed you know, very soon. But, you know, he, he doesn't have the, the final say on it, I suppose. So... Chelsea could have been to Jim Ratcliffe if he'd entered the race earlier. Was that a stalking horse? Was that just a case of him um, sort of flexing his muscles a little bit? Uh, who knows? Um, but the people that did take over uh, then went on a mad spending spree and it, it you know, hasn't really abated. Um, and that means that the manager in place, Mauricio Pochettino, who you know was up for the United job as well, wasn't he? There's quite a few sort of narratives here, I suppose. Um, ships passing in the night and all that. He's trying to make sense of you know, this kind of squad that's been bloated. I mean, I suppose the one thing you'd say on Chelsea is that they've got a really young team. So, you know, if it all works out, then they could have a really good squad in, you know, two or three years' time. But as it stands, they're a little bit toothless up front still. I think they're quite good at creating chances, but you can definitely get at them as well. So, I don't know, anything could happen at Old Trafford. Chelsea lost 4-1 at Old Trafford in May. 
and the away performance last year at Stamford Bridge, okay, it wasn't a win because United are banned from winning away from home against decent sides, but it was a really decent performance. And Chelsea, toothless up front, yeah, but they've still scored nine more goals than Manchester United. United have scored 16 goals in 14 matches. If you look at the teams above, Newcastle 32, Tottenham 28, Aston Villa 33, Manchester City 36, Liverpool 32. Even the teams below Manchester United, Brighton 30, Chelsea, as I said, 25, West Ham 24. Goals are a massive, massive problem for Manchester United. And yet United are still, what, five points clear of Chelsea in the league? Chelsea have won five matches. They've drawn four matches, they've conceded 22, so they've conceded five more goals than, than Manchester United. That's remarkable, by the way. I think Duncan Alexander looked at the, how many shots Manchester United have conceded in the last six games and, and it was a tally only bettered, made worse by Luton and Sheffield United. United are absolutely porous yeah. when it comes to giving up shots. And we, spoke, you know, we talked about Andre Nana at length previously, but... This Chelsea squad has Enzo and Caicedo, and that should be a central midfield pair pairing that should be competing for the Premier League title, in my opinion. I think that that is the sort of thing that teams will spend ages trying to get. And yet this Chelsea team is just bizarre. They they spent close to a billion and they still look like they need an obvious goal scorer because I'm you know, we're not sure about Nicholas Jackson and they're still waiting for Nkuku to come in. Yeah, they spent over two hundred million on just that midfield pairing, didn't they? To be fair, of, of Enzo and Caicedo. I mean, Andy, how, how delicate is the situation for United now? I mean, how, how crucial is it to get something positive out of this game, just to ensure that what's happened over the last twenty-four hours since Newcastle doesn't continue to grow and grow and grow again? It is delicate, and Manchester United need a win because otherwise we'll see a slump back to where we were before the most recent winning run. Before becoming the most informed team in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean... Prior to the weekend. Yeah, obviously. I think that that Luton win before the international break was was really important and that brought respite for a couple of weeks. But should Manchester United really about this, be about bridging discontent by scraping by? At some point, this team has got to kick on if this season is going to have any type of success in it. Because at the moment, you know that the team's not going to win the league. Are they going to stay in the Champions League? Is it going to be the Europa League, which I've said several times, I think the team are far more suited for. And the squad would be far more suited for it as well because it'd allow greater squad rotation unlike the, the Champions League. And you'd assume that players will be back in, in the new year. But it's a big match. And then you've got Bournemouth at home on Saturday. And there's jeopardy potential in every single game, including in the European matches. It's the opposite of when United were boringly predictable. And even when the team were winning all the time, I can remember saying to my mates, it's a bit boring, isn't it? Another league title. Honestly, these conversations were had. And even in the Champions League, yeah, you know we're going to go through the group stages, you know, 2-0 at home to Sturmgratz or whoever it is. But now... It's all gone. So you go into every single game on complete tenterhooks because this team have got that ability not to show their true ability and shred your nerves. Chelsea, as Carl said, they've got some cracking players. Would you, Would I be absolutely stunned if they won 3-1 at Old Trafford? I wouldn't. I just wouldn't. <laughs> it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. 
<laughs> Should we just talk about two two last notes? You mentioned that it's Chelsea and Bournemouth, Andy, and then it's Bayern Munich. Yeah. Three home games in a row. But Manchester United have been drawn away in the cup. I know. I know. I don't think this happened anymore. And it's first time in close to four years that fans will be going to a game following a draw away from home. And a, a big allocation as well. It's, it's throwing my say, head. I'm, I'm, as you can see. If you could see, pick somewhere, it'd be Wigan as well, wouldn't it? Because you get the entire end. You get 5,000 behind the end. I think only Blackburn would be better where you get 8,000. So, yeah, in the FA Cup, it's a, it's a, a decent one. And you would hope that given Wigan's struggles, Manchester United would manage to get a win as well. I mean, to win the FA Cup this year would, would be a real fill-up for Manchester United. And that's where you've got to be looking at now. I just don't, don't, don't look at a team thinking they're capable of going on any type of run. And you almost need to see Manchester City getting knocked out, otherwise we get a repeat of, mm. of last year. But no. Well, Arsenal Liverpool are getting knocked yeah. out for a start, aren't okay. they? So 12 consecutive home draws and then... Uh, an away one at Wigan. Yeah, I think people will take that away one at Wigan. You know, it's a big issue. Away tickets, the demand for them is surging. You're getting 12,000 people applying now for almost every single away match. These numbers are unprecedented. So you're seeing a surge, not just at Manchester United, but across football of people wanting to watch live football. And I met a guy on a bus in Istanbul last week who he's been rejected for the last 16 away matches. It's just bizarre, but at least Wigan, with a just under five thousand, that's what it should be. At least more fans than usual will have uh, the ability to watch an away game, and I still love the FA Cup, and I think it's a good draw. And last but not least, Laurie, a piece that you broke on Friday with Adam Crafton that we can't do a podcast without referring to. I'll read the intro. Manchester United are under investigation by Trafford Council after several people alleged they'd become unwell after being served raw chicken during an event hosted at Old Trafford. What on earth? (laughs) Yeah, did you ever think that you'd have the words raw chicken, Man United, in a new story on The Athletic? It's about the only thing we haven't talked about on this podcast since you three started and I, I jumped on board over the last however many years. I mean, people have called it clickbait, but I don't know what you think. Oh, um, sorry. Foul play, Laurie. Are we going there? Well, I was told that, you know, uh, lawyers have been cooped up all day figuring out how to solve this one. But listen, the mismanagement on United is coming home to roost. So, uh, no. You're cracking up here, mate. <laughs> You've written this down. No ways it's coming off and the top of your head. <laughs> this, is, this, this is all the stuff that was flying around. You're going to have to be- lay it to rest. Be- <laughs> I'm too excited. Um, this was all the stuff that was flying around before we sort of, you know, hit the button on, on publishing. Uh, there, there are more that we, we came up with, but I'll, I'll let the listeners off now. I'm, I'm sure a few of them that were reading the piece, I think we've had a few actually quite good puns on the old, on the old comments. Um, the only thing that I would say is that obviously it, it could actually be quite a serious story if United get their hygiene rating down because it means more money than to actually get it back up and that could have knock-on effects. So it's like a, a significant story for people that uh, are invested in this. Trust me, please. <laughs> but I appreciate that from the outside, it might look like, uh, yeah. Cluckbait, exactly Cluckbait. what you said. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, obviously, if you want to read that story, you know what to do. And there's that offer I mentioned earlier on in the podcast as well. I think we'll leave it there. We'll be back after Chelsea. But for the moment, Carl, oh, he's letting out a yawn. It has been a long night, mate, and it's been a long weekend. 
following Manchester United once again. <laughs> Carl, Andy, Laurie, thank you all for being with us and thank you for listening once again. We'll see you on the next one. Take care. Bye-bye. Athletic.